From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Paul B. Allen IV, new media entrepreneur and founder of First Sky Omaha. If I'm part of a thing that allows people in Omaha to do art easier than it is to do here in the first place, uh, if I can help provide a space where you can come and work your thing out, then I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing that right now. First Sky Omaha is a place where I can have people work out their thoughts and their ideas and what it is they want to do. And then Benson Theater, we're providing a space for you to do all the other cool, fun stuff you want to do artistically. And if I go somewhere else and I say, this is what I did there, then I can, then cool. It'll be, it'll be good for me then. We talk about Alan's family history in Omaha, his various experiences with media, both in and outside of the Midwest, and his vision for Omaha culture. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Paul B. Allen IV, who runs the Allen Showcase Media Group, building teams for media operations like Mind and Soul 1013 or First Sky Omaha. Alan comes from a long legacy of entrepreneurship in music, art, and media with a fascinating family history right here in the metro. He's also involved in the recently relaunched Benson Theater, a multi-million dollar community theater project. We talk about his wide-ranging career and vision for Omaha going forward. Here is our conversation. I was talking with Matthew Hansen about this, where when I talk to people who know how to talk to people on mic and stuff it's like oh man he's gonna see all the things i do he knows he's gonna see everything but i, I, I want to start with you when you do interviews do you do questions yeah i guess i do questions yeah do you, do you stick with them no i yeah. absolutely don't stick with them no no we, we we start just trying to get the ball rolling and then whatever happens after that happens yeah i've written 12 questions here i'm already off script and i don't know <laughs> if i'll make it to the script we'll see like, I don't know. It's a weird thing because, like, you want to be prepared, right? And I think writing questions for me, it's helpful in the sense that I think through maybe what the conversation will be. And then beyond that, I don't really care that much what I wrote. Is that what it's like for you? That is what it's like. I definitely uh, go off script all the time. The best interviews are off script. And uh, when things get lully or dry or whatever, then I'll jump to the question just to pick it back up. But p- for the most part, we just kind of let the conversation go how it goes. Yeah, see, now you told me a trick that when I, now when I look at the script, you're going to think you're being lowly and dry. And uh, <laughs> I Hey, I, I have been. I, I can't say that I haven't been lowly and dry. <laughs> well, you, you do a million things, and you do, uh, like, daily shows. You've got a million things out there. So I, mean, I assume to some extent that you, at some point, just got over the fear of, like, is the thing going to be perfect? And it's just like, I need to do something. I'm going to be good enough that it will work for the day, right? Yeah. You know, what struck us, uh, well, first of all, when we were back in the Mind and Soul days, uh, we were trying to make things perfect. It was FM radio. We wanted to make sure that it came out of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation as perfectly as it could because we wanted to be that legitimate thing. Uh, then we moved away from there and we started kind of podcasting, doing the podcast style thing that ended up going live on Facebook. That was when we can really kind of break free, be as loose as we wanted to be on it. And yeah, that was the time that we were like, oh, we can make any mistakes we want to make on this. At the time, we felt like what we're doing right now looks exactly like what Jimmy Fallon and those guys are doing right now because everybody was in, you know, it was during COVID. And everybody was like at home in their room trying to do something with no audience and flubbing their way way through it. So we said, uh, we would at least sound and look as good as that. So let's just do that. So uh, and we're we're glad we did because it it evolved into a conversation with people that they know we're just having a conversation. This is not scripted. Uh, We were coming up with topics and we're talking to you about it now and we could all make mistakes here and just get to the point. Yeah, I I watched a little bit of uh, Colbert with no audience. And I got to say, I don't know that it worked for me just hearing his wife chuckle occasionally. Yeah. It's like, this, this sounds like, it sounds it's it looks and sounds like you're bombing. Totally. <laughs> with, with that format. You that's, know that's what he felt like, too, the whole time. I'm just, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, like, you know, an actual conversation, it's easier to have some energy. But, yeah, just like, you know, yeah, your wife laughed at that one. That sounds, that's what it sounds like when you bomb at an open mic and your your partner's there. Exactly. <laughs> it yeah. has to laugh. <laughs> Yeah, especially those guys since they're comedians first. That you know, they I'm sure they were suffering through that. <laughs> 
So to go back and have like more of a macro view for you, you I mean, your family's got a big history of performing and setting up spaces for people to perform to do whatever in Omaha, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. You did a little homework on them notes there. I, I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Great Gramps had a place called Allen's Showcase uh, right there on 24th and Lake. And he brought in everybody from James Brown, B.B. King, uh, uh, Buddy Miles got his start there, uh, so they, you know, they, the, the the rumor is that he brought Jimi Hendrix through and played there too. So, wow. lots of rumors and lots of things, lots of stories, lots of stuff that happened there. Um, he was pretty awesome dude. He actually not just had the showcase, but he also had two record stores, and he owned all the jukeboxes in Omaha as well. So. Uh, my grand- great-grandfather was uh, heavy into bringing music to Omaha in a big way. What, how did that happen? Do you know his story? I've been trying to learn it this whole time. I actually came to town uh, wanting to do a documentary on the Allen Showcase, and that evolved into this uh, idea of the Allen businesses because of how many businesses that he was running. So now I'm just getting uh, oral histories and stories of, from people that were there back in the day. They can kind of tell me how that stuff started and, and what happened. I know that he, he had to kind of fight the mafia to get to get the uh, jukebox situation together, so wow. <laughs> yeah, so there was there's some definitely some stories I'm working through here to try to figure out what, what happened here. Well, so it's a, the mafia was in charge of the jukeboxes. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they they were. Uh, they kind of had it sewed up all around town. So uh, when my great grandfather's business started, uh, he started picking up steam, and of course that means he was going to get confronted by the people that were running it. Uh, somehow he beat them and and took over all Omaha with the jukeboxes. So. Uh, they did it all the way up until I, I was in town. They were still kind of messing with the jukeboxes, like in 2010. Wow. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> it was winding down, <laughs> but they were yeah they were still doing it. But uh, yeah, so th- those are the kind of stories that I'm, I'm hearing. He also had one of the first record stores where you can kind of go into a booth and put headphones on and listen to the record. Uh, that was one of the first places in Omaha that did that. So uh, I'm learning a lot about all the businesses that he did, and uh, and not just the showcase and you know all the Fats Domino and everybody that used to come there. Uh, lots, lots more he did in town for people, help people get their uh, their uh, political career started. There's, there's just a lot. He just did a lot. So I'm gathering all these stories and trying to make some kind of cohesive thing, and uh, that's probably what my documentary will be that, all about. Those are those are big shoes to fill, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I got in town, they were like, "Are you going to start the showcase back?" And I was like, "I guess I'll, I'll try. I'll see what's <laughs> up." Nah, wasn't for me. So, I mean, how did he end up in Omaha in the first place? Uh, well, he, he came with a lot of other black families, Great Migration, they called it, where they were a lot of families were down south. I think my family was in Chicago, and I found out there was work in Nebraska, so they, they came uh, around, uh, I don't know what, what years those were, 20s, 30s, 40s, something like that. Uh, and they, they came and worked at the packing houses and uh, just kind of made a life for themselves. At the, back in those days, 24th and Lake Street were, and that whole area around it was full of black businesses, so they had a, a, a huge community where you can actually start a business, make some money, and, uh, and gain some prominence in town. So um, my great-grandfather did that, went to the war, came back from the war uh, speaking French and started a French restaurant, was was part of the French cafe scene. Wow. Uh, he did a lot when he came back in town. So he came back in town, and him and his brothers uh, put together several businesses, and that's that's the legacy now. That's that's where I come from now. So, so I mean, he's one of those guys then that just wants to do everything. Yeah, I think I think that he just saw opportunity, and he was uh, the kind of guy who can lead. Yeah, and that's sometimes that's really all you need. It's tough yeah. to want to do all that in Omaha to some extent, though, too, right? Well, nowadays, yeah, it's a very different scene than it was then, for sure. Uh, the support factor is very different, but uh, you know, Omaha is still kind of a town that you can do you can do a lot. I I grew up in California, and then I've lived in you know other other places like New York, and went to Europe for a year, lived in Hawaii for nine years, so. You know, compared to all these other places, yes, you can still do a lot in Omaha. Get get things started and get things flowing, and and really kind of make a business and do what you want to do. So, so okay, California. You grew up there. Was the legacy of your family was that still like hanging over you when you're even in California growing up? Um, not really. Well, kind of. Yeah, my my grandfather uh, migrated our family to California in 1963. So my dad actually grew up in California from I guess 10 years on. Uh, and that's where I was born and raised as well. So he, my grandfather, actually really left a legacy in California. Just he was a, a businessman. Everybody knew him in town. Uh, he started studios that my uncles worked at, my dad worked at, and uh, and and created from. So they were kind of in the music business in California too. And that was the that was the legacy I was focused on was my grandfather's legacy. It wasn't until I came to Omaha in 2010 
that I am bombarded with the stories of my great grandfather's legacy, which is wow, which is huge too. You got like a, a, a an embarrassment of legacies <laughs> to try to dig through and deal with. Well, well, luckily they're not embarrassing legacies. So no, I, just yeah. the, the amount of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luckily, it's not notorious. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> stories that I'm hearing. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting that my name is Paul B. Ellen the Fourth. I am the fourth. So I now have three other legacies to live up to. Uh, if I looked at it that way, I don't really look at that. They were all very supportive of whatever I wanted to do. I didn't have to live up to a legacy or anything like that. Just do what I wanted to do. You guys, so it's just like it's natural then that you guys all just happen to be really ambitious. May, could be. I don't know. If, I don't know if ambitious is the word. I wouldn't say I was ambitious at all. Really? <laughs> what, what were you like? Uh, I think I just I just did things. I just uh, did what I saw around me. So I grew up in studios and I grew up playing music. Every man in my family pretty much was an entrepreneur. Nobody really had a, a corporate job or anything like that. So I just kind of saw people uh, deciding that something was cool and going to do it, you know. And I just kind of do what I know. But I don't think there's any ambition behind it. Like, I'm probably the least ambitious person I know, really. <laughs> I fight that all the time. Like, you don't got to be ambitious. Just, you know, do what you do. You don't got to, like, make it in the, you know, who's, who's looking? Who's watching? Who's the judge here? Let's just do what we want to do. Well, so, I mean, why why is your family so into music and uh, media and all of that? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the talent. Everybody had uh, talent for music. Uh, yeah, I never really thought of it. I, I think a lot of the family has talent for music, talent for art, several different kinds of talents in the arts, and then the entrepreneurship part. So I think that, well, take my great-grandfather. I think there was a place he saw an opportunity to open a spot and basically what he did was grab artists that were coming through Kansas City on their way to New York. And, uh, and you just thought, yeah, that was a great way to make some, make some uh, money with this business here. So he just kind of did that. That opened the door to the exposure to all the people that came through. Like he was best friends with Fats Domino. Like I said, my great uncle used to go pick up James Brown from the airport. He used to tell a story about James Brown and James Brown's bodyguard, which is this <laughs> really big, tall white lady that used to like fill up the whole door. That was his bodyguard, and uh, and he used to tell the story all the time. Like, I, like if you want to go see James Brown, uh, you had to go through her and be like, "Hey, can I speak to James?" And they'd be, she said, "Mr. Brown won't see you right now." You know, like all these great stories about that. But they kind of grew up around these people, and uh, and then that that combined with the talent made them get into the business. And yeah, just I guess it just trickled down. I and mean, they put me in piano lessons at like two years old, so. Like very early on, I was just exposed to music and and uh, that life, I guess. And growing up in California too. If you're in California, you're in music or movies, mm -hmm. or you surf, or you do all three, or skateboard and all four. So that's. Did you do all four? I did all four, <laughs> of course. So okay, piano at two. Yeah, you just took to it naturally, and you just learned it because you were young enough and had the brain power to do it. I have to give that to my mom. She she uh, showed me some things, and then they put me in lessons at four. And then I fought my mom in lessons from four to eleven, uh, but uh, yeah. So it was yeah. It was just you know she was able to not have to work, so she stayed home and she she uh, helped me through my lessons. And uh, I, I guess it helped that they they owned the family owned a studio at the time too, so I can go to the studio and be like, oh, this is what I can use all this for. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So that kind of kept me in it. And uh, after finally 11 years old, I finally fought her so bad she was just like, fine, stop. I'm tired <laughs> of this. And then like my uncle, uh, at that point he. It was the, what was it? I guess, what was I, when I was 11, I guess I was 84. So he, he bought like a Yamaha DX7, and then we just had like all the 80s uh, synths and everything like at his house at mm -hmm. that point, and then I was back in music. So I was just like, okay, well, I'm done with the <laughs> lessons, but I'm going to keep on playing. Yeah, like I, <laughs> I, I was signed up for piano, so I think I did it for like three years, and uh, I, I did not have any cool outlet for it. It was just I could go to the living room and... Yeah. Badly play songs and get annoyed at how bad I was at it. And I don't know. I just I, I like the music, but I just there's, there's a special kind of patience you have to have with yourself. I think. Yeah. To teach yourself to be good enough to actually just sort of have that instinct. And yeah. I, I did. I didn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of didn't either. I kind of faked my way through it. Kind of uh, played by ear. Didn't really read all all the stuff I was supposed to be reading. I think I spent more time playing around on the piano than I did, you know, just uh, you know, w with my lessons, but. Uh, it was it was all good. I was I was the person that was really mad that there was that I had to play classical music all the time. That was like my biggest thing. So I was like, you got to go get me some sheet music from somewhere else 
because I'm not going to play an, I'm furry lease at the, <laughs> at the thing anymore. And then uh, and then somebody got me like a Eye of the Tiger or something like that. So I played that for. I was like, I, I can do this one. Does that one that. sound good on the piano? No, <laughs> sounds horrible. <laughs> but it was fun. It was much more fun than the classical I was playing. So. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Paul B. Allen IV about Omaha culture, First Sky Omaha, Benson Theater, and more. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Riverside Chats. Well, okay, so you're in California. When do you get to Hawaii? Oh, man. Uh, I, th- I think I was uh, 20. Well, first first I went to, first I came out to Nebraska. This is, oh, okay. so growing up, in California, that means I come to Nebraska in the summer times to see the grandparents. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that all gro- all my life growing up. Uh, by the time when I got about twenty two or twenty three, I decided I wanted to come out and just hang out here for some reason. Uh, I don't know why at the time. You know, you know, I, I was just wanted to go somewhere. I don't know yeah. what it was. Um, but I so I came out here and I stayed with my great grandfather. So that was I got to spend a year with him. He was like eighty five years old at the time or eighty four. And uh, and I got to live with him for a year and kind of just see how he lived and hung with him, which was great. Uh, and it was that was in the '90s, so uh, Omaha was the coolest place on earth for me at that point in wow. time. Wow, okay. I used to go. You don't to, hear that a lot, dude. I used to go to Cog Factory and hang out. I used to go to. I was like playing chess at coffee shops in Leavenworth. Like I went home and wrote movies about Omaha's like downtown scene because it was that cool. So yeah. all my all my life, uh, you know, all, after that, after I lived out here for a year, I just had that kind of thought about what this place was. So um, after I moved back there, I was in California for a few more years, and then I moved to Hawaii. And I was only supposed to be there for like six months and ended up staying like nine years. What so. were you doing there? <laughs> uh, same thing Same thing that we do. I was, I was starting bands. I, was, uh, I, was, I helped start a, a hip-hop radio station out there. Uh, we formed a band and we played all, all, all the islands. Um, I was making all the, doing all the marketing for the band, so that led me to a job at a print shop where I learned how to do poster making and screen printing and everything else. I did that for about a year, but for the most part, uh, through shows, through parties, 1985 Prince parties. I did, all, I did so many things in, as far as like bringing culture to Hawaii that I was lucky enough to be able to do that and not really have a regular job the whole time. And were you a lot of surfing still? No, nah, man. No, nah, we were. I was done surfing in California, and the surf culture in Hawaii is if you're not surf culture, then just don't even get in the water. <laughs> like, don't mess with them. That's a lifestyle out there. So, uh, we. It, I was cool too. I got up there a few times, but yeah, I was. I was doing more chilling at the beach at that point than than uh, out there trying to compete with those cats. Yeah. Well, so so you had a love for radio though, even you know, as, at a young age. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I think I had a love for all. Yeah. Yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, radio at a young age. I remember my dad uh, give me, giving me these Abbott and Costello tapes when I was about three or four, so who's on first and all that. I used to listen to those. Uh, we had a great uh, a public radio station in California that I used to listen to all the time. Uh, I used to walk around with a tape recorder, taping myself, talking like the radio for a lot <laughs> all the time when I was young. So, yeah, there was. A, I, guess, I guess when I think about it, there was a draw to that. But there was also a draw to TV, and there was also a draw to film. Just all, all kind of media in sure. general? Yeah. Well, I mean, radio is something that certainly over the, over the timeline we're talking about, it seems like it, it had a little bit of a heyday, and then now it's sort of like when I pitched this show even, uh, Todd was sort of like, why do you want to be on the radio? You got a podcast? Why don't you just do that? <laughs> I was right. like, no, it's fun. There's something – I don't know if it's like romantic or just something uh, about just – it feels it feels like there's a legitimacy to radio to some extent that just doing a podcast doesn't always make you feel. Hmm. I don't know. You feel that way at all? Um, I kind of do in a way. Yeah, I think I think radio is still very very important. I think all podcasts and everything it kind of grew out of the radio. So in that tradition, it's great, and also the live tradition is great. I love that you can go on live right now, and you know people can go in their cars, turn it on, and hear you talking right now. So that I think that part of it is still really great uh, because everything else is made to order. You make a podcast, listen to it when you want to, mm-hmm. you know, type of thing. So yeah, I like the immediacy of it uh, of radio still. But uh, I didn't get back into radio until podcasting started getting big. That's when I started going, hmm, I got to get back and see what's going on here. Radio Lab did it for me. So, radio Lab, okay, yeah. Yeah, heard Radio Lab and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing that. I can do sound design and get on the mic and talk about what, what, what I want to. You know, it was, that was kind of the turning point for me. So, I mean, where were you at the time you discovered Radio Lab? That's a good question. I think I was, uh, I think I was, I was, I was, Still living in Hawaii, but I was coming to California. I, I, I travel around a lot. I didn't just stay in one place for a long time. So I went back 
to visit family there, and I think like on my way from California to Vegas, I heard it on a on a radio station or something, and then I was just hooked after that. So, do you remember the episodes that the first made an impact? No, on you? no, I don't remember the first episode. Um, no, I don't remember the first episode that hooked me, but. It was those crazy sound effects. You're like, oh, okay. I'm curious. It was early on. I think, as a matter of fact, I think like early on, Jad Abenrod did a did a show where he showed how he did sound design on the show, and that was like, oh, yes, I do that all the time when I'm making music. You know, so it just stuck with me. And so, I mean, you've been in a bunch of bands. I mean, uh, was was there a plan at some point where you were just like, I want to go tour with the band, and that's going to be my career? I I did some of that in California. I did a little bit of the, of uh, hopping around in some bands and playing and doing some little short tours and stuff like that. But like I said, I'm not ambitious, man. It's, hey, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If not, then you know, uh, because because music is a lifestyle. So I just make it and play it, and and that's my communication with friends. And so we're just going to do it anyway. If it goes, it goes. You know. You say you're not ambitious. I'm still not sold on this. <laughs> you seem ambitious to me. I don't know. I think mean, just do. I just do stuff. You know. <laughs> I think it sounds ambitious from Omaha. I think Omaha feels like it's ambitious because you have to be so. You have to kind of be ambitious to do art in Omaha. That's true. Because it's not an art town. Yeah. But it's just the way I wake up. For me, that's just how we. You know, that's how, just how me and my people do it. So. Um, so it doesn't feel ambitious at all. It just feels like, uh, oh, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna come back and lay this beat down real quick. Okay, let me let me let's make a commercial real fast for this thing. You know, it's just the mic is on and we just do stuff. Yeah, I guess Omaha Omaha ambitious is like, do I want to watch the usual channel tonight or switch to a different channel? No, no, <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. But I'm just saying, like, like, uh, like in order to do anything, in order to really kind of make it or do anything huge in art in Omaha, you have to work really hard because it's not a it's not an art town. It's not a town that has the the uh, support that you need to like do this all the way. Yeah, but you but you romanticized Omaha to some extent. It sounds like. Well, yeah. Well, I, I mean, when, when I came back in 2010, it wasn't it wasn't like the 90s no more. So I, I will say that. But uh, I, <laughs> uh, 90s were cool. The, what, what was going on back then? I did, and I, I'm quite sure I romanticized it after that. Um, I still there's still like some of the most talented people I've ever met in my life are in Omaha. They don't necessarily uh, have careers in music, but they're really bomb musicians because, you know, they there's not much to do in Omaha but sit here and just get good. So, um, uh, but unfortunately, like, there's no, you, you can't get an agent here and you can't get uh, bookings around town that keeps you paid. You have to have a regular job and you just get really good at guitar or whatever because you do that after work. So, I mean... Why would you come here then when it sounds like you wanted to do some of these things and get paid and have fun and, you know, create those opportunities in cultures where people are doing that normally and it's not necessarily a sign of ambition? You know why? Because I'm not ambitious. (sighs) You don't come to Omaha to play music and do (laughs) stuff. Like, if I was ambitious, I wouldn't have came to Omaha. I would have went to the town that does the thing that I do. But since it's just a lifestyle for me, it's just something I do anywhere I'm at, wherever I'm at. At the time, I, I had different reasons for coming. So uh, this time I came because I came in 2010 because my grandfather had cancer and I wanted to hang with him. Mm. And, uh, and I was done with the island. I had went to Europe and lived in Europe for a year. Um, and then I, when I came back, I came back. My mom's in town and, you know, I got family in town and stuff. So, so, I, uh, you know, what I, so what I ended up doing was, um, was coming back to hang with him. And again, I was only supposed to be here for a little while. I was on my, on my way to New Jersey, actually. And uh, and then I just ended up staying. And again, I've been here like ten years, so so <laughs> seems to be a pattern in mine. But uh, it was just because I got into one cool thing after another, uh, and then certain you know, like my sister and you know other family member came family members came back and moved back in town for a while. And I just I was like hey, I'm not ready to go back and pay like five thousand dollars for a one bedroom in L.A. right now. So I think I'll just kind of stay and uh, and like I said, I just keep getting into cool stuff because I can because you can here. Yeah. Well, so, so what were some of those cool things that you started to get into once you started to set roots here? Oh, man. Omaha Film Festival. Yeah. That's, that's my staycation every year. So that I go to Omaha Film Festival. I check out all the stuff. I hang out in the in the scene there. I've even put a film in the fest- festival at one point. Uh, so, you know, that kind of that that whole film scene was really, really cool. Uh, I actually took some classes at Metropolitan Communi- Community College to do uh, audio video communications there. So I was doing a lot of photography, a lot of film. Uh T- spent a lot of time kind of up in my my game, you know, when it came to the media stuff, 
because you have time to do it here. You can just do it. Mm-hmm. And like I say, a lot of talented people here. So uh, that was the cool thing. When I first got in town, I just jumped into playing music right away, of course. Everybody needs a drummer around town. So I played in a bunch of bands as, as a drummer for about two or three years, paying dues, making 50 bucks for a six-hour set. And that kind of sorry mess, <laughs> um, but I, but it was it was like me um, paying dues is really what it was as far as like because you know that's that's when I knew I was like oh it's not a music town yeah we're playing some music here and there but you know unless I go play for the church or something I'm just not, I'm not going to really play music for a living here I was I was DJing for a living in Europe okay so that sounds exciting and glamorous it was yeah very much so and you were yeah. you were okay with giving up that kind of lifestyle though. Yeah, the, I mean, the time was up. Um, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money out there. The time was up. I had already stayed past the visa. So I was just like, let me in. And, there, and it was just time. It was like time was up. So, um, so you know, I never really felt like going back to that situation. Um, Where were you in Europe? Well, I lived in Paris. for, for first When I first got in town, I lived in Rome. I lived in Rome for a while, right next to the Vatican, which was a trip. When I was in Rome, I, I uh, connected with a guy who had a series of of, um, of clubs that he was just bringing people in on, and I got a residency there. So that's how I was able to stay there longer. Uh, in the middle of that, I went to London for about six months. I went to Paris for six months, and I, then I came back to Rome. And then, um, and then yeah, so it kind of added up to about like a year and something. And uh, then it was just it had to go back. Like I had to, you know, the, the the place was was falling apart in in the in uh, Hawaii. I had to decide: Am I going to go back to Hawaii and you know keep paying rent here? Or am I? What am I going to do? And uh, and so I kind of just decided I was going to come back. And plus, I was I was also engaged. I didn't tell you this whole part of the story, but okay. I was also engaged. Uh, that person moved to New Jersey. That's why I was on my way to New Jersey. Got it. We broke up while I was here. I stayed. So. Um, so that was so there was a bunch of factors involved that was just like it's time to come back and do what you got to do. Kind of ran out of money a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and just uh, was was going to come on to the next adventure. So that was that was how that was. I had a good time, but it wasn't like something I felt like I wanted to do for the rest of my life either. Okay, you know, Europe is cool, but like just you know, I'll visit and <laughs> I'll see what's up. <laughs> but uh, you know, the clubs dried up, the weather changed. It was time to go. So. So when you're here and you're finding uh, some degree of an outlet through Omaha Film Festival, I mean, your love of movies has come up a bunch of times here. What were some of the filmmakers? Like, I know pretty much in Nebraska, everybody will talk about Alexander Payne is like the big one. It seems like, I don't know. I don't know if he, it seems like right now it's sort of a question of what his legacy is going to end up being, right? Was he somebody who was on your radar at all? No, not at all. No. I didn't really know about him until I got here and Leo Adabiga shoved a book in my face. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this dude. Uh, no, I like his, I like him. I like his, uh, his stuff. Uh, he's, and I like that he's a big supporter of stuff out here in Omaha. I, I hate that, it, that he's going through some trouble, but we all go through trouble. So, yeah. so what? It's his business. Uh, but I do, I do like him. I like him as a filmmaker. I'm kind of the old school, though, uh, like Kubrick. You know, Spike Lee. Um, actually, uh, John Singleton is somebody who is a, a, turning out to be a hero of mine now as far as film is concerned. I, you don't really understand his genius until, like, way later. Um, Isn't that annoying when that happens? Like, you're a kid or whatever, and people are like, this is the greatest movie ever you watch. And you're like, it was fine. I don't know. And then when you're older, you're like, no, they were right. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I like a bunch of different stuff, um, and you know, just media in general. I'm I'm all about the uh, uh, TV's renaissance right now. Of mm-hmm. course, there's there's several things that I like there, and I, I try my hand at writing some things from time to time and putting things together all the you know from here here and there. But same thing, there's no ambition behind it, just something cool. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm still gonna push back occasionally. You said you wrote screenplays about Omaha in the '90s, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Are, are those still around? Yeah, they're probably the best things. That, I probably should dig those out instead of trying to write some new stuff. They, they were yeah. probably really good. Yeah, you should make them. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. It'd be good to like make a movie now that was set in the 90s. Like It's time for the 90s to come back strong that way, I think. Yeah, I think that we're getting nostalgia for the 90s. That's definitely a cultural thing right now. Like Even people, like the one that I don't get, maybe you can help me explain it to me, is the... Uh, Nostalgia for like cassettes and VHSs. Like, I, I get that you had them when you were younger, but they're just not. Like, it doesn't sound or look that good. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not. I'm huge. I'm huge on records, though. Yeah, I, I get I, that. One of the cool things that I did was I, I was in town was worked it with Kate DeSoe at Hi-Fi House, 
And uh, I don't know if you've heard of Hi-Fi House before, but there was a place here right before COVID that you can go to and listen to the best records on the nicest Hi-Fi systems that that you can find in this beautiful setting with these leather couches. And it was just the greatest place on earth. There was really no other place like that in the world. Uh, and, and that was one of the cool things that kept me in town for a couple of years was the Hi-Fi House. Well, that, that brought me back to records and how much I, I you know, I used to, and I used to own a record store in, in Hawaii. So when I was in, in Hawaii, I had to leave all, when I left Hawaii, I left all the records to a friend of mine there. That must have been tough. Oh, it was really tough. And, uh, you know, I packed some away that, that I was like, you're going to have to send these to me. I just never did. And I'm just like, ah. But, uh, <laughs> but I, everywhere I go, I start a new record collection. So I, I love that part. I don't know about tapes and the rest of that, but. Uh, records are still cool. Yeah, no, I get, oh, I get that because they can sound good, right? <laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking today with Paul B. Allen IV about Omaha's cultural scene, which he's a part of in myriad ways, like his work through First Sky Omaha Benson Theater and the Allen Showcase Media Group. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue the conversation after this break. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Paul B. Allen IV, who runs the Allen Showcase Media Group, building teams for media operations like Mind and Soul 101.3 or First Sky Omaha. Allen comes from a long legacy of entrepreneurship right here in the metro. He's also involved in the recently relaunched Benson Theater, we talk about his wide-ranging career and his vision for Omaha going forward. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, so, I mean, it seems like a, a recurring theme for you is you like to both create but then also to curate. Yeah. Where did where did curation enter in mm, for you? That's a good way, good way to put it. Um, yeah, when did that start? That's a good question. I think that... Um, Probably when I probably in Hawaii when I was doing uh, when I helped with the station there. Uh, even before that, there was the station I worked at in uh, California, Moreno Valley, California, and I worked there for a while and just wanted to create programming there. And, the, and when we were thinking of creating programming, we were like, well, we we can't we can't like make make every song every time we want to do something. Uh, let's just talk about the stuff that influenced us and what we liked. And I think that's probably where it started. So it kind of did start in radio mm-hmm. mostly. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then DJing. I'm a DJ, so that that's like a, by definition, you're a curator, right? Well, the, 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 that's. I mean, there's a couple layers there, right? Because as a DJ, you're curating to whatever event is happening, right? Or like whatever you know energy there is in the room, right? Whereas sometimes on radio, it's more of just like a you know you want to highlight certain things or you want to give attention or emphasize or whatever. Uh, so I mean, you, you you have like the different facets of curation under your belt this as is well. True. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could say that. Yeah. And so, okay, so you're in Omaha, you're doing things, you know, you're not ambitious, but you're doing a million things that no one else is doing around you. Uh, when does radio enter in again as like a real thing that you're involved in? Uh, I guess so, 2016, um, I got a call from a friend of mine, Jay Myers, who I ended up doing a radio show with later. Uh, and he was like, hey, you guys need, you need to go over and talk to the guys at Malcolm X. They're putting a radio station together. He gave them my name. They called me and they were like, we're looking for a program director. Can you do that? And I was like, Yes. I can do that. Um, so I think that would that would encompass all of my skills if I was a program director here to do. So I, I did that. Uh, that that's how I got back into it, and uh, and basically I had to build a radio a radio program from scratch. So we you know they had the name for us already, Mind and Soul, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to populate now the rest of the twenty four seven cycle with uh, all kinds of stuff. So we were doing thirteen fourteen hours of programming a week. The rest of it was like curated music that we did. 
we uh, connected with uh, uh, other DJs and stuff in town that did some live stuff on Fridays and Saturdays. And my thing was just to pull everybody together. I wanted to have a film talk show, and I wanted from the Omaha Film Festival. I wanted to pull everything together that I had done so far and represent that on uh, the radio. So uh, that was a really fun thing to do. It was a lot of hard work. It turned me great, like the second year. Big time, big time wore me out. Um, uh, and then, you know, and then it was from, it's a nonprofit. So then there's the bureaucracy of that. There's, uh, you know, having to deal with the board and so on and so forth. So uh, it was tough, but it was super fun. And it was definitely up my alley to put something like that together. So uh, we kind of just went from there. Well, I know you say you're not too concerned about legacy, but that seems like the kind of project that people will remember. People, you know, it left an impact on people's lives. It's something they'll talk about. Uh, I know you're still doing iterations of it to some extent now, right? But, like, did, was it something that you thought, okay, this is this is a, a footprint on Omaha that I'm going to leave at least? Um, I, I think I did think it would be a footprint that, w- that I would leave in Omaha, but only because I think the kind of stuff that I do just leaves footprints in places like Omaha. I don't know how, how I don't know if I'm saying that right, but what I feel like is that if you are doing anything in media um, that you are working to get other people to hear or an experience, because there this is not the town for that, it's going to leave some kind of impression. So I was pretty ready to be to def, to uh, you know I was pretty ready for people to to uh, uh, feel that way about what we were working on, what we were doing. We were definitely trying to bring things from other places that we were at here and trying to get the most people to listen to it. And I do, I did think it was going to make an impression. Uh, but it wasn't me going, I got to live up to my grandfather's legacy or anything like that. It was just kind of, uh, I, I know everywhere I go now and do things like this, that's what happens. It just happens that way because we... I think it's more so because we just do things, do like what we like to do, what we think is cool. Yeah. And uh, and we do it authentically, and that that comes across, and that leaves an impression. I think it just leaves an impression, good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they they know we're out here doing it, and that's just what we do. So, I think that's the that, that's that's all it boils down to for me on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are good impressions and bad impressions in terms of the radio footprints, though. Sure, there there are sure. people in Omaha, I would say, are actively making uh, bad impressions, bad footprints on the culture. Uh, uh, we don't need to get into that necessarily, but like you know, you you're trying to do it in a way that seems positive, it seems supportive, right? It's oh yeah, 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 and it's trying to be you know informative in ways that are constructive. Yeah, that was the thing. You, you know, for us, uh, out of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation, was trying to do really good work in the black community. We wanted to make sure that we were doing something that was uplifting the people there, and uh, and and it was it was very easy for us to do that because we were already on that tip. Uh, after we left there, we started First Sky Omaha. It was the, it was kind of a continuation of that. Plus, we had we found our strength in being able to have conversations with people that were that were listening to us. We mm-hmm. brought people into it instead of us just uh, you know just just pontificating out all the time. We were actually having conversations and listening to what people were bringing in, repeating those things and having conversations in real time. And uh, that's really what what that's what it evolved to and that's so much better than what we were doing before so that that leaves the space for us to make whatever mistakes we're going to make and do whatever we're going to do we're all in this thought process together to try to figure a thing out and uh, we have as soon as we left mind and soul uh and started first sky omaha it just it was tenfold the people that were interested in in having these kinds of conversations and so it was a good move for us to do that what was it that led you to make that change initially Malcolm X Memorial Foundation decided they didn't want to have the radio program anymore. I think they just didn't want to have it the way we were trying to run it. I think we were running it in a way that was too much uh, responsibility pressure on them. Uh, they wanted to do it a different way, uh, and we became that put us at odds. And then uh, we decided to kind of just split and go our separate ways. So they closed it down, and uh, we in December of like late December, by January fifteenth, we were up and running with the digital channel of First Guy Omaha. So. Uh, and then we just kind of left it with them. Hey, if you ever need some help to get that back together, let us know. Um, and I, I think they might be in the process of doing that now, but not sure. But it just uh, it was a, a good thing for us to do that. Uh, we were already kind of moving in that digital direction just because we were kind of feeling like, you know, what can we do with a low power FM station? I don't know how far how much farther we can get there with that. Uh, but I know that we can put our efforts into this thing digitally and really explode. So that's what happened. That's what we did. So how much content do you guys do a week on First Sky? 
Right now, uh, we've are in our we're in a second season. We were doing it Monday through Friday in our first season. Now we're doing Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and so we do two hours uh, two hour conversations Monday, Wednesday, and Friday every week, uh, and that's pretty much the the basis of what we do at uh, for First Guy right now. Um, we're also partnered with the reader, so we're doing a lot of their uh, some of their video work, some of their audio work as well, uh, and that that the partnership is. Is is what is the point for us now? Is are these partnerships? So we're partnered with the reader. We're partnered with uh, uh, Noise. We're partnered with uh, Flatwater Free Press. Uh, when we talk, when we bring up subjects now, it's coming from those sources, or it's coming from our listeners that are saying this is what we want to talk about. And uh, and now, so now we can talk about those things more efficiently, and we do it Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, two hours a day. So we're looking at doing some more because people are asking for more. But right now, uh, we seem to be we seem to be holding the conversations and, and getting to the points that we want to with just that schedule. That seems like a, a difficult schedule to have to you know. Sometimes, do you ever just like feel like I don't know that I have a ton to say today? Does that ever happen to you? Never. Uh, sometimes there's a couple times we were just like, man, it's kind of a slow news day. Never have people people want to discuss. People have things they want to discuss and they're fired up about. And if you give them the time to to be fired up about it and talk back and say stuff. You you'll never run out of subjects because everybody is is on there listening so they can they can they want to hear something they want to get their point across they want to fix something we have a very mobilized group of people that are listening to us and so there's never a shortage of anything to talk about that's for sure so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's always a funny it's always a joke between us we thought it was a slow news day twas not <laughs> if you're just joining us I'm talking today with Paul B Allen the fourth about Omaha culture Benson Theater First Sky Omaha and so much more. Let us know what you think on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Well, and you're involved in a bunch of other things, too, like the, the Benson Theater, right? Yeah, I just went on full-time to the Benson Theater, helped get that open, and uh, and now I am, I am a director of communications over there. So I got – okay, a friend of mine, a friend of the show, Matthew Wersner, comes on and gives me history lessons every couple months. Uh, he told me to tell you that he is the tallest man I know and that the Benson Lights sign or the Benson Theater sign is too bright and it hurts his eyes. Oh, yeah. We get that all the time. Everybody <laughs> says that, except for the people that work there. They say it's great to come out at night uh, to that bright little corner and not have to worry about uh, turn, you know, the walking in the darkness to the car. Yeah. But yeah, we get that a lot. It's a very, 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 very bright sign. Very bright sign. But you know, hey, maybe one day we'll we'll, we'll get a dimmer on it. I don't know. Well, I think it. I think it speaks to your uh, talking about you know Omaha's not especially ambitious, not really an arts town. We're like, yeah, the theater lights are too bright. That feels like a, <laughs> an appropriate complaint. <laughs> <laughs> for this culture. <laughs> yeah, what do we need theater lights for? What's that? Uh, yeah, that's funny. Uh, but that's a, that's been a lot, a lot, a lot of work. So um, I've probably, this is some of the, this is a, between First Guy Omaha and the, and the Benson Theater, I'm working really hard right now. There's a lot going on. And you still don't think you're ambitious? Um, I don't think so, no. Um <sighs> I'm being I'm being a little bit ambitious about the theater right now because I we I really on the team to make this thing happen and get it open and going. So the fact that we did that now we're all able to take a little bit of a breath and uh, get fired up for the programming that's going to happen January. Um, that you know we're we're in a good place right now. We're feeling pretty good about how this is this is working. We've worked out bugs and so on and so forth. But uh, so we have we all have to kind of it's all hands on deck right now to get get something like a six million dollar project open like that. Um, this it took a lot took a long time. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of consulting with uh, Amy Ryan, who's the person who's the brainchild behind it for about two or three years already before I even came on full time. So I'm on full time now, and it's just all hands on deck to get it open. I, I can I can say I can kick in with a little bit of ambition when I need to, <laughs> and uh, right now I, I'm doing that because I'm part of a team that's really trying to make that happen. So. Yeah. That's that's different to me than ambition, though. That's just we're on a mission now. Let's, come on, team, let's get it happening. So, I mean, the it's been it's been being renovated for several years. Um, I we actually Riverside Chat started at B Side as a series of live conversations yeah. years ago, uh, and they were always on like the coldest day in January and <laughs> a struggle to get a big audience. So we ended up moving it away from that. But what's the vision for Benson Theater going forward? Oh man, uh, it's such a well thought out space. It's a place that we can do. We're going to use the stage. Uh, we're going to use the screen, and we're also we also can do concerts there. So. The place is well thought out. We can do all kinds of different art there. And it's really for the community. That's the biggest thing is it's for the community to, to come and use. Um, I always say 
you know, Chip Davis is the namesake of the theater now, and he has been behind the the state-of-the-art lights and sound that's in there. If I was a young cat doing, you know, writing some film stuff or writing some plays, uh, uh, to be able to come in there and have a state-of-the-art light and sound system to for my thing would be just... You know, it's, it's a community theater, but not like any other community theater. It's a top-notch theater that the community can use, and, and that's what we're looking forward to. So, you know, extension of the B-side. Rest in peace, B-side, by the way. A lot of us got our start at B-side. It was a great space. Uh, that energy is definitely held, held over to this beautiful space now, except for nowadays you feel like you got to walk in, you got to get a tuxedo on to walk in that place now. <laughs> but it's still raw, cool, and a good place to be able to do some stuff. And for the people, that's what it's for. So is the idea then to bring in, like, you know, the possibility of, you know, I don't know, whether it's film festivals or traveling plays? Like, I guess, what's what's the balance of how much that would be generated locally versus this becomes maybe like a national spot for events? Uh, it's all of the above. So we there's some uh, programming that the, the uh, crew is, has put together. There's going to be internal programming that happens every once in a while. Uh, some things on the weekend that we're looking at doing, too. Uh, but there's also traveling uh, like you said, film festivals, uh, plays. Uh, right now, I think they're working on the next play, which is actually a play that was from Broadway. Uh, I don't know if I, I'm no, no if I'm supposed to say what that is quite yet until there's a licensing thing happening. But anyway, uh, so yeah, Broadway plays coming in from outside, stuff that we're putting together inside, uh, stuff that the community puts together as well. So local filmmakers and local playwrights will be able to do their iterations of things there. And then uh, music, as far as music is, is concerned, too, I'm going to bring a little old school Allen showcase to the thing by uh, bringing in cast from out of town, having them play. Uh, I'm going to do a Sunday jazz brunch there with uh, some of the jazz players in town. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be all over the place. We'll, we'll be open four or five days a week and, when it's all said and done. So you, you've, you've, you know, I know the ambition thing comes up every two minutes. And I'm sorry, I keep... <laughs> the theme of this show yeah. today. In case you missed it. <laughs> um, no, but just, uh, you know, it's sort of like, it's funny that you didn't feel the need to uh, necessarily walk in your family's footsteps in this sense, but you're, you're getting there, right? Like, it's happening naturally. Yeah. That's true. It's just because that's what I do. I mean, that's, I learned how to do that from them, and that's just what we do. So It's got to feel good, though, right, to be part it of the feels, legacy? It feels great. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I didn't really have any pre- pressure for the legacy before, and but it's nice to be able to walk in the footsteps of the family, for sure. Um, they always, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a situation where they were just always like, you're going to do great things. You're doing great things now. You know, like fully supportive for whatever it is that we wanted to do. Uh, downplay what they do and and you know my my grandfather my, they used to come to my recitals like it was like I was on like I was in New York somewhere you know like they they just were everybody was super supportive and everything I was doing was great and that's great and uh, that allowed me to be able to do things and not have the pressure of anything just to do them I think when we talk about ambition we talk I I when I hear the word ambition I think I'm after money I'm after a status in the in the in the world uh, I gotta, I gotta grind and do all these things so that I can get to this certain level. I'm, I'm more of a, I'm from California, man. I'm, I go with the waves, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, I go with the flow. Yeah. You gotta just go with the flow. You can't, you can't put all that on. You can't put all that pressure on you. And if you, you don't have a family that puts all that pressure on you, then why would you get it from the world? You know what I mean? So, um, if, if, if we're if we need to go back and figure out what we mean by ambition, maybe we should discuss the word. But for me, it's I, I've never been ambitious in the way that I felt like I needed to go uh, do a bunch of stuff for my career and get to a certain level by a certain time and any of that kind of stuff. I just I, I'm I'm fully committed to doing the things that I do artistically, creatively in media. Um, I love working with teams. And, and them not letting me down and me not letting them down and us doing some great things together that we couldn't do by ourselves. I think that's fun. Um, but uh, if it's something that doesn't work out, then it don't work out. You know, uh, I fully went broke doing mine and soul. So like, <laughs> but it was fun. We had a good time. We did. A, I did a show with Derek Higgins called The Roots of Electric Jazz. That was like my favorite thing to do every week to hear this man, you know, the legendary Derek Higgins talk, talk to me about stuff. Um, I did. I did a funk tropolis with a friend of mine. We just played funk music all night long. I mean, that's that's. How can you be ambitious if you got a funk show? Come on, man. <laughs> so maybe the word is passion. You're just you're passionate, and it's gonna it's gonna have some kind of outlet no matter what. Like you're gonna find places to put your passion, 
And that happens to look like ambition for us Omaha folk who don't know could be what to do with our time. <laughs> could be, could be very much. I, I like that word passion very much more than ambition for sure. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry it took me the whole interview to get there. Yeah, so I like the I like how we broke it down. That was great. <laughs> well, are, I feel like you've got probably other things to plug that I don't even know about. Is there anything else you want to mention or draw attention to as we wind down? I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, focused right now on uh, Benson Theater. Uh, just because it's that that time right now, and it's uh, it's uh, all hands on deck. We're trying to make it happen, uh, and made it happen. Like I said, the doors opened a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're doing parties and stuff for donors and, and thank yous and things like that now. Let people you know go about their business as far as the uh, holidays are concerned, and then fire up some programming real strong in the first part of January, and just be and just go from there. So. Um, and right, we're already in discussions about people that are coming that want to come and do th- certain things and play certain shows and have a run of their play. And uh, yes, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be great. I can't wait. Um, I can't wait to see all the activity. It's going to be B side on steroids. So I can't wait. <laughs> is there like a website people should go to to learn more about it? Yeah, um, the website is the the original uh, Benson Benson Theater, and it's the fancy way to say theater. So with the R with the R E at the end, yeah, uh, BensonTheater.org. And you can check that out. Uh, we're still running on the old uh, the old site right now. We're building a new one now. So, you know, by January, we'll have a whole different look and whole. But you can still find out information and, you know, what you need. And the biggest thing is if you have ideas that you want to do there on in the space, then uh, just go to the website and you, you can hit the info at BensonTheater.org and just be like, hey, I want to do this. And then somebody will get back to you and say, all right, let's figure it out. So everybody can be passionate and explore their passions together, whether you're ambitious or not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's the biggest thing. My, if, if I was going to talk about my legacy, if I'm part of a thing that allows people in Omaha to do art easier than it is to do here in the first place, uh, if I can help provide a space where you can come and work your thing out, then 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 I'm doing what I want to do. That feels like I'm doing what I want to do then. So, uh, so yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing that right now. First Sky Omaha is a place where I can have people work out their thoughts and their ideas and what it is they want to do. And, uh, you know, figure out the local politics, how it affects their life and uh, let them speak on that. And we're providing a space for that. Then Benson Theater, we're providing a space for you to do all the other cool, fun stuff you want to do artistically. And uh, and if I if I leave out of Omaha, if I go somewhere else and I say this is what I did there, then I can then cool. It'll be it'll be good for me then. I'll be happy with that. That's a great note for us to end on. So thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find a backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.